So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with the monthly magazine show for your ears. It's the modern man, and here's what's coming up. Seeing a police officer crying in the forest is a beautiful thing because I know how important it is. Evasive flying, extreme multitasking, and post traumatic development. The well being consultant on what she learned in Basra. Plus, I so often say that sweeping topics under the carpet just makes lumps for you to trip over later, and I think that this is one of those lumpy topics. Alex Fox investigates dating after bereavement, and Ollie Pierce philanthrotains us. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and we had a bunch of you write in actually with Mambassada requests this month, so. I thought I'd do them up top for a change. Why not? Let's flip reverse it. Do you like the way I work it? Uh, Well, talking of um, bum sex, Rebecca Levy, uh, listening in California, says, Ollie, I've been listening to your show for a few years and I love it. I listen while I'm on my daily run. My claim to fame is that Alex Fox once consulted with me for a question of anal sex because I'm a gynaecologist and kind of an authority on such things. Uh, My daughter Danielle also has a podcast and once had Alex as a guest on her show. Because of all these connections and because I just bought you a few beers, can I be the ambassador for Napa Valley? Uh, Rebecca, that is a glamorous location and I really like how you've laid out your qualifications there. You know what you want. Yes, you can. You are now ambassador for Napa Valley. Now you've got an even stronger claim to fame (laughs) than having advised Alex on anal sex. Head on down to the Coppola Ranch and make yourself a star. Uh, Man fan Jack O'Donovan from Dublin has been in touch as well uh, and also bought us a round of beers. Thank you, Jack. Uh, He says, hi, Ollie and co. I've been listening to you since the AMT days. I never miss an episode. If the territory is not already taken, can I be ambassador for Dublin? especially since you upload on my birthday in October. Oops, I think um, I didn't check the inbox soon enough to get that one, Jack, so we're a bit late for your birthday. Uh, But actually, you can have Dublin, extraordinarily. Uh, I had to check and double-check because I was like, how have we not done Dublin before? Unbelievably, County Meath is taken, but no listener has laid claim to Dublin before. You're the first person to ask. It's yours. Um, Producer Matt would also like to point out at this juncture that apparently we don't have any Spanish or French ambassadors either. That just seems... It seems crazy. Uh, We've had nearly 150 ambassadors, but apparently there are no Spanish or French ones. So if you think... You would like to represent those countries in an ambassadorial role for our podcast in your territory, then do reach out, monmanwith2ends.co.uk, and I'll do another ambassador dedication at the end of the show as well. Uh, Also, Bob Bobbins has been back in touch to clarify that isn't his real name. I did ask. I know you were on the edge of your seats. Uh, He says, uh, I'm a juggler, and Bob Bobbins is the name I go under as a juggler, plus it gives me a bit of anonymity online. I love that we have a professional juggler listening. Come on. Um, Right, before we get going with this month's show, a big thank you to our sponsors this month, Readly. 
I love Readly so hard. It's such a great app if you love reading magazines, which I'm going to guess since you're listening to a magazine-based podcast, you probably do. Empire is on there, Men's Fitness, Rolling Stone, um, and also apparently the top choice of Modern Man listeners since we started running this promotion, BBC Good Food magazine. That's on there too. Who'd have guessed that would be the top choice of the man fans? But actually, it's a great choice to read any kind of glossy title on Readly because, well, you get two options. Basically, Readly lets you choose. Do you want to look at the text-based kind of online article version of a story, which is what I do when I'm on my phone and I'm just commuting and I quickly want to take in some information, or you can just toggle and look at the magazine layout version properly kind of laid back sofa experience if you've got a tablet computer and you can turn the pages just like the paper copy see that stuffing in close-up readly are offering you an exclusive three-month free trial so you can browse unlimited newspapers and magazines readly.com slash man free everybody R-E-A-D-L-Y dot com forward slash M-A-N-N. Now, after your free trial, they will switch you up to uh, the paid plan. That's £9.99 per month. And it is still a great deal anyway. I mean, with family sharing, you can also share your account on up to five devices. All the national newspapers on up to five devices. I mean, that's worth it by itself. So do it now. Readly.com slash man. Remember these slash M-A-N-N so they know we sent you. Readly.com slash man. Man. Okay, coming up on today's show, you will learn when it's a good idea to sleep in your bathroom, you'll learn why orchids are connected to testicles, and you'll learn why you shouldn't give a nurse a box of Quality Street. Let's go. Time to test your trends. It's the Zeitgeist with Ollie Peart wearing a red beanie, which I know in hospitals they sometimes put on babies to indicate distress. <laughs> Are you distressed, <laughs> Mr. Peart? I am a little bit. Yeah, suitable suitable warning for you. I, I've just had no sleep last night because my daughter was up from midnight until four o'clock in the morning. Like, what? Oh, right, what? Yeah. Like, I, if she wakes up and cries whatever that's fine and then kind of goes back to sleep but for whatever reason she just wanted to chat she didn't want to go to sleep (laughs) where does she get that from yeah exactly well we're talking about charity this month ollie so we'll all keep you in mind as the case study that we should all be supporting because (laughs) you'll remember man fan anya in west london wrote in to ask how to donate guilt-free to charity She says she's heard so many bad stories in the news about how donations are spent or how long it takes to get to the people who need it. I think she's had a case of the Captain Toms, basically, hasn't she? (laughs) So now she's worried that all all charity is corrupt, allegedly. So, Ollie, is it? uh, Is there a trend for corrupt charity? (laughs) And to answer her question head on... How can you make the most effective change happen this winter? Yeah, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's not beat around the bush. She's asked me to fix charity, basically, because, you know, the perception out there is that charity's broken. And you are this generation's pudsy bear. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with my big <laughs> swollen head. There's a lot of reasons as to why people are probably feeling like charity is broken and that their money's not being spent effectively. You mentioned Captain Tom. Captain Tom was this veteran that during the covid pandemic walked around his garden a hundred times and he raised 38 million pounds for the nhs it was a lot of money it was amazing and he died in 2021 he was a national treasure everybody was upset so his family decided to set up the captain tom foundation and the money poured in 
And very soon after that charity was set up, the Charity Commission opened a case into the charity. This was in March 2021 because its accounts showed that in its first year, it only gave £160,000 to uh, charitable causes and £240,000 was spent on management and fundraising costs. Essentially, right. it was really ineffective. Well, exactly. Ineffective is probably the right word to use, isn't it? The legally safe word. But it does hint at one of the problems of running small charities, doesn't it? Whatever your intentions are, which is there are admin costs. Yeah, there are going to be costs associated to running a charity. Of course there are. You know, from boring stuff like stationery to sort of bigger things like PR and, and, and marketing and things like that. The the Captain Tom story, I think one of the things that got people slightly aggravated, particularly now we're going through a cost of living crisis, is that his daughter, uh, Hannah Ingram Moore, she was paid around £63,000 a year in her role for the charity. Well, that's, it's sort of three times the average salary. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a, huge, it's a huge amount of money. And yeah. I think people just thought, come on. But you were right to point out with the, some of the smaller charities about how they can be ineffective with their spend. Uh, uh, another example of this was there was a... Um, a breast cancer helpline and the charity commission found that it only spent three percent of its money that it, it, it earned through donations on charitable activities three percent and then eight hundred thousand pounds went on things like fundraising and other expenses but you can see why people do want to give to the smaller charities that the feeling is is that they want more direct action they feel like by giving to a smaller charity actually their money is more likely to go to the, to help the people that are in need. But one of the issues is, yes. is that these smaller charities simply don't have the infrastructure or, yeah. or, or the systems in place to be able to distribute that money effectively. However, yeah. that doesn't mean that the bigger charities are immune. Give Directly is another really big charity set up in 2008, and it's a really simple premise. The idea behind it is that it is literally cash transactions. So rather than you donating money and then that money goes to sort of facilitate big projects and that kind of stuff, you are literally giving your money and they give it to families who need it. It's like, here you go, here's some money. But then there's you've got to have some transparency about that process too, haven't you? Otherwise people are like, well, I didn't mean my money to go to those people. They have been transparent about it, to be fair. And they actually found that quite a lot of their money that was um, being distributed out in the Congo was basically being stolen. $900,000 uh, of money was being, yeah. was being nicked because th th there were people within the Congo that were kind of working with people uh, outside of the organisation to basically steal these donations. But then also you have like, it seems to me, issues-based charities where part of what they're doing is raising awareness of the fact they exist at all and the causes they believe in. So then you could say, I don't know, let's take a testicular health charity. If they spent half a million pounds getting an influencer on TikTok to talk about their testicles, that might seem like a waste of money because you're not helping people that are affected by the issue. But actually, if then their viral video causes a million men to check their balls, then that's money well spent, isn't it? It's quite difficult to quantify. But that's the issue, isn't it? Especially at the moment when you're trying to ask people for donations. If you can't articulate how your money's going to be spent, people are going to start asking questions. And that's why the bigger charities do have to be, and are, very, very clear on exactly where their money goes. So Oxfam, for example, they uh, rake in something like, I say rake in, that's the wrong terminology, but you know what I mean. They have donations <laughs> <of> around... <laughs> They have donations of around 400 old million money bags, Oxfam. Oh, money bags, Oxfam. <laughs> With their they... trucks full of old books. <laughs> but they do, they come under, because they have such a lot of money floating around, they do actually come under an awful lot of scrutiny. So they break down every pound that is spent 
to to the penny. So they will say for every pound, this is how much goes towards this part, this is how much goes towards this part, and et cetera, et cetera. And they will do that in their annual report. So you know exactly where your money's going. But these larger charities do come under a lot of criticism, again, especially at the moment in a cost of living crisis, because they have quite plush offices. They have, Mm. you know, executive officers who are earning, you know, six-figure salaries. Their argument, of course, is, well, look, we need the best people to operate in our charity so that we can run effectively. But it's difficult to, as a donor, to kind of justify that. It's part of you that's thinking, well, hang on a minute. You're a charity. You shouldn't be doing this for the financial reward. You should be doing this because you want to help people. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it is quantifiable that, isn't it? Like the difference an executive has made to an organisation, they can say, oh, look, since we employed this person, we've raised an extra 20%, so it's worth it. But but again, it's it's like trying to get that message over to your donors and kind of uh, for them to understand exactly what's happening with your with your money. And I think actually it's one of the reasons why there's been such a a huge rise in what has been described as, not by me, uh, philanthropainment. Now, this is um, a phenomena that is um, the best example of which it's been orchestrated by Mr. Beast, who is a YouTuber who, if you don't know uh, of... I've heard of him. Yeah, yes. exactly. 207 million subscribers on YouTube, which is an extraordinary number. And he makes a huge amount of money through his platform and he started to use it for philanthropic exercises so things like which he makes videos about in themselves exactly he makes videos about and what's what he's actually done it's a bit uncomfortable isn't it even even if it is good it's a little bit uncomfortable like he's making content that he then monetizes well exactly and i can't i want to test you on this because i think there's there's still a lot of because it's relatively new there's still a lot of uncertainty around it as as a sort of a, a a charitable idea i guess what he's done is he's he's set up um another channel called beast philanthropy on youtube this one's got about 18 million subscribers and what he says is every single penny uh that i make through this channel so through advertising goes directly into the charity so it goes towards he's got like a food bank there that it goes towards and uh, his other um projects that he's got going on he's asking people not for money not for not to volunteer he's literally just asking them to watch his content and that will you know that money will then go towards the charity so actually so when i said he's monetizing it he's he sort of is in terms of his brand but actually the the ad clicks from those videos does go to the person you're watching the story about does it is that how it works on that platform but and this is the thing that i kind of want to test you on because he's released a new video literally in the last few days it's called i built a hundred wells in africa right and it has had 50 million views in two days, this video, it um, has been posted on his actual YouTube channel. So not his philanthropic one, Beast Philanthropy. And he has tweeted alongside this that he already thinks he's going to get cancelled. He thinks that people are going to basically criticise what he's been doing. He says he doesn't care. I'm just using my money to help people. But the criticisms are, look, what you're doing here is creating content out of people who are genuinely vulnerable in a difficult position and and poor, basically. But he's also doing something which is direct action and that is helping these yeah. communities. And this is where the conflict comes in. Like you're watching it thinking, okay, he's doing something good, but he's also benefiting commercially out of this. He must be in some capacity. Even if it's just brand building for him. Yeah. But then you could say the same thing about us, couldn't you? You know, we feature people in our middle feature stories who are vulnerable, who have had traumatic experiences, who have, I guess, like a cause that they want to promote or um, an angle on the world that they want to platform. 
I don't feel, because I wouldn't be doing this show if I did, but I don't feel that we're taking advantage of them by showing their story. I feel we're lifting them up and, and giving them a new audience. So I can understand why he feels like that too. And if, in a sense, like, if we suddenly got 50 million listeners, that wouldn't be my fault. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, that would, be, that would be good for everyone concerned, but we'd still be doing the sort of public service stuff we used to do sometimes. There's another example of this. I actually spoke to um, Lucinda Rouse, who is um, from a magazine called Third Sector, which basically is, is all about the, the charity sector, about exactly this. And I said, well, how is it any different? Or is it any different from Nick Knowles building a house for somebody with a disability? You know, like that. Yes. Surely that is the, the same kind of thing. And arguably it is, but I think the problem is that he's doing it on a huge scale. So when you're, say, the BBC or us, um, and we're telling a single person's story, there's a certain amount of due diligence that we will do. We make sure that people are you know, comfortable in telling that story, and we're not going to put them through any unnecessary trauma as a result of that or difficulty. you know. And we can do that because it's just mm. one person that we're talking about. But one of his videos, Mr. Beast's videos, was buying an orphanage, for example. He bought an orphanage and basically fixed that up. And another one was paying for a thousand people to have their eyesight fixed. Oh, can you imagine if you're in the orphanage next door? <laughs> Or you're, you're person yeah. 1001 that doesn't get the eye operation. Well, well there's that. Everyone else is vaunting around in their celebrity orphanage, and you, you know, with their fixed eyes. Well, I, get, I think that, that, like, that is another criticism of it, isn't there? Because he's kind of, what he's created is something that's pretty much finite in that respect. He says, I'm going to do it, you know, a thousand of these, a thousand of those, one orphanage by this manor house. Okay, but what about everybody else? Where's the ongoing yeah. well, that, philanthropic I mean, enterprise? What, I mean, that is what the UK government does too, though, isn't it? You know, we say... Okay, uh, Tanzania, here's fifty million pounds, and it does run out. It doesn't go to everybody. Yeah, but that's every year, isn't it? You know, it's not like they give fifty million quid one year and then it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, no, no more anymore. That'll be a certain percentage of GDP that goes as aid to other countries. There, there are loads of examples actually of this growing trend in philanthropy, which is asking people rather for the for for money direct money or or their time is just literally asking them to consume your content a great example of this actually is uh, an instagrammer called the king of chemo which you can check out and and he's fascinating basically he got told that he's got terminal cancer and what he wants to do is try and earn as much money as he can to sort of put research into this type of cancer that he has this brain cancer that he has before he dies and his way of doing that is to say look i don't want your money i don't want you to um donate money i just want you to follow me on instagram because i can then monetize my content and i can use that money to then uh, put towards these charities okay so we've talked about some of the trends that there are around this and we've talked about some of the risks i guess about donating to charities of all kinds but what about the solution you know anya said how can we make the most effective change happen this winter? So look, I, I want to be able to give money to charity and I want to do it now, please. After chatting with uh, Lucinda, one of the things that she said that you should probably do is your research, do your homework. If you've got some money, you know, disposable income, which not many of us have got these days, to give to charity, then have a real long, hard think about wh- where you want that money to go and then do your research on who you think or what what charity would be the most effective to facilitate that. That that's step one. But also, there's there's just old fashioned volunteering is the other thing, isn't it? I mean, this doesn't help fix charity. But one of the things you can do to know you've done a good thing that doesn't even have to cost you any money but time is to turn up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, it's it's just to answer Anya's question directly about you know giving money to charity guilt free. Just do your research. If you have time to give away, 
yeah, do that. Why not? Go down to the local soup kitchen and go and help out. That absolutely is a, a brilliant thing that you can do. But it did get me thinking about how I can implement effective change over the winter. Mm. You know, little old me. So what I thought... Is this why you've asked me not to put a challenge to you for next month, so? It is, Ollie Man. Yes. I've been concocting a little plan. Oh, God. <laughs> I've had an idea to create, like, a one-stop shop, although I don't want to call it a shop. Can't call it a shop. We did that last Christmas. Where our... Well, yes, exactly. Where our wonderful listeners can essentially give the gift of their skills that they have to people mm-hmm. that might need it. So I haven't got a final name on this, but I was thinking something like the modern man swap shop, but I don't want to call it a shop because I want to remove any kind of idea that this is some kind of transactional exchange. It's not. The idea would be, say, for example, you were a garden designer. Uh, you could say, I'm yes. a garden designer. I'm really good at designing gardens. And then a nursery or an orphanage even could say, hey, we need a garden designing. Uh, could you design our garden? And you go, yeah, here you go. So it's like a skill kind of giving service, if you like. And, and I want to kind of create a space skill where people swap. can kind of... Yeah, but but it's not a swap. I think this is an important thing to differentiate. I don't want I don't want the orphanage to think they've got to give this person something because they don't. You know, it's not like <laughs> here's a garden. Oh, here you go. Here's an orphan. We're not going to do that. Yeah, it's uh, it's got to be. It's a skill match, isn't it? It's like a matching service. Skill match, but for yeah, people. Well, in we need. did match a mate, didn't we? We kind of did match yes, a mate. We've done that as well. <laughs> yeah, man, fan, skill. Hmm. It's hard, so you isn't can't, it, branding things? No, nothing commercial. You can't do exchange. That can't work. It's got to be like give, give, giving. Give is a useful word, isn't it? That's why all those charity sites use it. Give your skills. Man give. The, the, <laughs> skill the, give. The, the, the modern man give a skill. Modern man's give a skill. I mean, it's clunky as fuck, but we're only going to run it for a month. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, actually, no, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there, Ollie Man, because one of the other oh. things that uh, I've been thinking about, which we've, we've, we've touched on, is that charity isn't just for Christmas and it can't just end and it can't just be finite. What I actually want to try and do is create something that is ongoing, an ongoing platform that sort of develops organically and is a place that you can go that requires very little management and time for my part but that people can go to and say, hey, look, you know. It's a skills database of our listeners and what they're prepared to offer other listeners for free. That's it, isn't it? You've summed it up brilliantly, Ollie Man. What about a skillathon? Can we call it a skillathon just for December and then we'll work out a better name afterwards? Okay, a skillathon. Ollie Skillathon. Quite like that. That's like the, uh, yeah, the what they're called? Telethons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going for Michael Aspel, Des O'Connor vibes. Skillathon. I'm going to write it down. Then we can have like a mascot. We can invite pop stars in. <laughs> well, hang on a minute. But then we're getting into... Where, how are we going to pay we for that? We can have Anthea Turner answering the phones. <laughs> we can't pay for a mascot. We've learned all these things, Ollie. We can't pay for a mascot. Right. We can't have any money going no, towards no, no. things. We can't have money you're going right. towards I'm fancy being facetious. Offices. No, you're absolutely right. We're trying good, to fix good, charity, good. so we're going to pare it down. Yes, absolutely. So the idea, man fans, is for the December edition of this show next month, Ollie Peart here is going to report back... <laughs> on actual listeners like you that he's matched with other listeners like you who have skills. People who have skills matching people who have needs. Charitable needs, useful skills. And and you can can be anonymous in this as well. I don't want people to feel like if they Mm. are in genuine need and they genuinely need somebody to, you know, uh, do something for them, 
that we're going to use their name for philanthropytainment. Uh, if you yes. want to remain anonymous, you can. Absolutely don't have to. And that's the same for the donors, I think, as well. Oh, 100%. Because there'll be people yeah. listening to this who are like, I'm a graphic designer and I'd be willing to help a small cancer charity design their website, but I don't want to be credited for that. Like, I actually don't want people to know that I did that to get advertising for myself. Yeah. That's cool too. Like, that's not necessary, is it? You can be anonymous if you want. We'll share your name if you want. I mean, it'd be useful if one person was okay with us sharing their name simply because we won't have anything to talk about next month. It would be it would be preferable if yes. people were prepared to participate in an audio product, yes. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise we're not going to have much to say. But uh, I think this is a nice idea for our Christmas edition. So the concept is that we can match together, out of all of the tens of thousands of people listening to this right now, mm-hmm. we can match together just a handful. There surely are just a handful. And they could be all around the world, thanks to the internet, can't they? Who can help each other. So how how do people register for this? Because I'm, I'm going to plough through the email. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to set up a URL. So modernman, two ends, dot co dot uk forward slash, well, skillathon. But we need to, de- yeah. how are we spelling that? Do you know what? I wouldn't want to punish dyslexics. Why don't we just do modernman.co.uk? It's already got two ends in it and that's complicated. Slash skills. Okay, yes. Okay, forward slash, slash skills, skills. But it's for the skill of thumb. Yes. Okay. Modernman.co.uk forward slash skills. Okay, so if you go to modernman.co.uk slash skills now, there'll be what? Like a, a way of registering whether you have a need or have a skill to offer. Yeah, exactly. A form where you enter your details, you have a skill, you put your skill, what it is, or if you have a need... You can put that and the, the the need that you have, and then I can then facilitate uh, and match people up. Great. And I'm figuring out the best way to do that, but I will keep everybody updated. Yes. So the, and and then we'll talk about who you've hooked up next time in the Zeitgeist. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. And I think it's worth saying as well, if you're someone who's getting in touch because you need help. You don't need to feel that the bar is very high. You don't need to have a terminal illness to get in touch. It can be a case of you are struggling to pay the bills, right? Or it could be that you need your fence painting. It can be anything, right? I want to try and keep things as remote as possible. And what I mean by that is that you don't necessarily have to have any kind of sort of physical gift in time. But that's because of the issue we had with Matchmate last time where you were trying to make people friends who lived in Australia yeah. and South Africa. And, and we've got listeners yeah. all over the world. So I want to kind of um, yeah. do my best to be able to kind of match people up wherever they live. But yeah, absolutely. You can get in touch with absolutely anything. And, and it could be even, I'm thinking about me at the moment. I I, I, I need somebody to just organise my schedule a little bit because I'm just, I'm knackered and tired. <laughs> and I think... Even if, even if you're someone, I can see you and McGregor on the telly now. <laughs> Just think of all those self-employed podcasters who need help organising their schedule at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. You can do your bit. Listen, yeah. you know we are we're hard hard done by us podcasters, but it could be something as trivial as that, trivial as that, or seemingly trivial, but actually something that could really help you in your life. We're doing Noel's Christmas presents, aren't we? You're you're <laughs> you're growing into Noel Edmonds anyway. You've got the beard. Oh my god! You're roughly the age that he was then. Now, aren't you? I've just got to get into some what, kind of 40, weird 39? pseudo science. What I don't know. What? Uh, how old is he? He's, he hasn't aged, hasn't he? Always been thirty six. He was forty then. How old are you? I'm thirty seven. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Perfect golden era Noel Edmonds BBC One Christmas Day, isn't it? 
So imagine imagine Ollie Peart, but yes. with a paisley tie and blazer combination. Mm-hmm. Helping Thanks. people with disparate needs. I don't think I've ever been so offended on this podcast ever, am I? <laughs> 15 million people used to watch that, Ollie. Something you, to be offended about. Used to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ollie. Cheers, Ollie. Uh, right, in a moment we'll be venturing to Iraq with our middle feature guest, Kaz. Uh, but first it's time for our record of the month. He's been described as one of the most original voices in UK rap, Jelani Blackman. And this is his new single. It's called When You Feel It. I can't wait till we go clear No, it felt like we already had it all I can't wait till we go clear me and you, I know our backs against the wall But it's perfect when you're near I can't wait till we go clear I can't wait till we go Me and you, we got this Life is a mush pit, just so toxic sometimes I wanna be us in the sunshine But now the price rise higher than a gun crime Chatting about kids that you want mine I tried this, I tried that. Some love goes and it never comes back, but I never step back when I mention it. Now, we frequently talk to people on this show who have served in the military, usually after they've left the armed forces, sometimes when they're doing something totally different, but sometimes, uh, as in our episode Surgery on the Front Line, when they've taken those skills that they learned in the army and then put them into civilian life. In that case, you might remember I interviewed a couple of field doctors who now work as surgeons in hospitals. But what about civilians who find themselves caught up in or adjacent to big military excursions in foreign lands? What can they do with those experiences? Well, my guest today, Kaz Jane, now works for a police constabulary in the west of England. And for a period, she lived in Iraq as a British civil servant via the Foreign Office. To understand how she got there, it helps to know that in her teens, Kaz had travelled a lot, spending time in Israel, Zimbabwe, Turkey, island hopping in Greece. So, on becoming a young mum, working in offices in England just wasn't doing it for her. I had the travel bug, you know, by then already. I'd already done a lot of independent travel and decided that um, I would seek out ways that I could travel with the child safely. So um, I suddenly woke up one morning and thought, embassies abroad, they must have British staff. So I just wrote them an old-fashioned letter and said, can you tell me how I get a job? (laughs) What was your first posting? Well, I went to um, Whitehall for, for the first year or so. Um, and then applied for a posting to Bratislava. So I did three years in um, Slovakia. Yeah, I was, I, you know, I was scanning my head for Bratislava as the capital of which country? Oh, yeah, it was a brand new capital then, really, because it, it was the end of the Cold War and it wasn't used to being um, a capital city because it was after the Czechoslovak split. So it was. Did you know anything so- about Slovakia before you went? No, nothing. Nothing. And what was it like trying to bring up a child in a completely different country? Well, Bratislava, I, then I got pregnant when I was there. So I, uh, my son was born in, in Austria, just five minutes across the border. It was difficult. Um, a lot of the Slovaks didn't understand English. So my daughter, bless her, she went to a nursery school there and they just sort of shouted at her in German. So 
<laughs> poor thing. The three years I spent there, I was working as a political assistant. So I was looking after the ambassador in a really old, beautiful building on a cobbled street called Panskar. Um, the embassy wasn't exactly fit for purpose. Again, I don't know if it still is now. A beautiful old building with stone steps. And I think being heavily pregnant going up those steps is one of my um, lasting memories. And being my office was shut behind several secure metal doors with combinations on them to get in. So I could hear someone coming a long way off. And I do remember on one occasion being so tired because I work right up uh, to the Friday and my son was born on the Monday. And I can remember falling asleep in the diplomatic bags because <laughs> they used to keep them in my back room. After Bratislava, I went to Sri Lanka, um, beautiful island just off the tip of India. I was there for just over three years um, there too. Yeah, that was fantastic. And then I came back to the UK. I had another child there, of course. <laughs> Most people do fridge magnets. <laughs> yes, I did stop at three. I stopped at three. Um, and, and I think it was quite difficult because um, once your kids get to a certain age in the foreign office, a lot of my colleagues were just sending them back to boarding school. Mm. And that wasn't really the sort of family life I had envisaged. So um, we were faced with a bit of a difficult decision. Did you carry on? doing this traveling and you know once secondary school was kind of on the horizon it, you know it became a bit more problematic so we went we actually went back to London after Sri Lanka and ended up in rural Cambridgeshire right ended up in Cambridgeshire yeah yeah I can see how that's the right decision for your family but also yes. how that's the wrong decision for someone who has this kind of wanderlust well it was definitely and so I took a, I had a couple of Whitehall based jobs including being a speech writer I think, you know, there was a certain point where enough was enough of Cambridgeshire and I went to Iraq. <laughs> what was the job as it was listed that you signed up for? I think it was head of press and public affairs in southern Iraq. So this was 2006. So remind us where we were up to uh, in Iraq history at that point. Well, we were in a position where we'd stopped blowing it up and we'd started rebuilding it. So debathification had happened um, that, may, that, that uh, meant that um, anyone in the bath party was kind of not allowed to be part of the government but really a lot of that was more Baghdad focused and I was in Basra in the south where um, the British had an airbase um, and they had um, Basra Palace which was um, Uday Hussein's former residents in fact and they'd set up many would say perhaps a little early but they'd set up a consul and a consulate there and we coexisted on the palace um, with the military so there was a military base there and your job was to communicate that to the press <sighs> it was a tough ask really and very naive when I look back my job was in fact I had a message from number 10 before I went out turn the narrative around <laughs> on my own so I went there I had to engage with both the local um, Baswari journalists as well as any visiting journalists from CNN and uh, The Guardian and BBC so I had to entertain them and, and make sure they got the British line on our reconstruction effort and bearing in mind that um, some local people from Basra had had their throats slit just for 
talking to us so I was like very conscious that by even having a conversation with me mm. some of them were risking their lives so I immediately realized as well I didn't speak Arabic so um, within the first few weeks I arranged for someone to join me who I knew was an expert Arabic speaker from back from the press office what difference did that make huge he, he, they loved him his Arabic was fantastic and we had a really warm lovely relationship with them I'm still in contact with some of them now and they used to bring us fresh dates and um, write poetry for us <laughs> and your family meanwhile are back in Cambridgeshire no no they moved to Kuwait right yeah they but you're moved. not in Kuwait no but that's where all the diplomats if they were serving in Baghdad their starting point would be to because you couldn't fly can't fly to Iraq in those days you'd fly to Kuwait City mm. and they had a team in the um, British Embassy in Kuwait that looked after specifically to look after diplomats serving in Iraq so my um, my kids and then husband all uh, lived in an apartment my kids went to Kuwait English school whilst I was uh, actually only an hour and a bit drive away from them but oh, so you could see them well that was the plan the plan was i might even come back at weekends um, but that didn't transfer because it was far too dangerous too dangerous to just drive down the road yes they felt safe they were living the expat life of course in a nice nice school and eating yummy food and getting entertained going to the swimming club and you know just like any other expat you know, in the little cocooned world, really. And is there... I, I sometimes wonder with these voluntary posts, mm. whether there's a sense of... You're volunteering to assist, but there's an element of your own self-development. It's almost oh, like yes. it appeals to people who want to find something out about themselves. Oh, goodness me, you're spot on there. Because um, I, I mean, my marriage wasn't perfect. And um, I have no doubt, that although I might have said it was all altruistic is all to do with me helping to rebuild Iraq the, bo the bottom line is I knew that I it was a bit of a test to see you know how my um, my then husband would cope with the kids um, mm. definitely and it was the first time I'd been apart from them so it was it was, it was a big test for us all um, one so that he didn't pass actually <laughs> we ended up splitting up afterwards the plan was that I would be coming home at weekends to Q8 City but very quickly it became clear the only way in and out of where we lived in Bajra Palace was by helicopter at night with the lights off doing evasive flying and if you know what evasive flying is it's exactly as it sounds ducking and diving and uh, flying very low I can remember being in the helicopter and it going up and down and, and asking the soldier next to me what was that all about and and he said oh it's avoiding the power lines so that's how low mm. we were wow. going but we had rocket or mortar attacks directly onto our compound on a daily basis several times a day uh, one american colleague was killed the thing that upsets you most is you you live in a freight container right which is air conditioned it's actually sound it's better than it sounds that is uh, got you know walls and things and a toilet in it and a little kitchen uh, but it's quite small at night you know mostly the attacks come at night so my dilemma was this it was roasting hot in the desert mm. 54 degrees during the day it was horrendous at night it was pretty warm to sleep in a metal freight container so with the air conditioning on you couldn't really hear much of what was going on outside which is quite a nice thing sometimes but 
wanting to be hyper vigilant and alert to danger you kind of want to switch it off so that if you can hear something you know you kind of need to know do you know what i mean it's a bit yeah. like being blindfolded so i throughout the night i used to switch it on and off and then on when i got too hot and then off again to try and listen for incoming rocket and mortar um, and that was quite, that had an impact definitely on my kind of mental health, I'm sure. And at times when you, you'd hear an explosion reasonably close by, you would then go and sleep on the floor in your bathroom because you know that if the, if the comp, you know, if you get hit and your freight container gets um, damaged, then you at least be near water so you can drink water if you get trapped under rubble, for example. Yeah, and all of that, I suppose, you're trained in, are you, by the military? Yes, yeah, yes. We did a hostile territories course before we went. But the worst time was when I had some colleagues. They were Sri Lankan chefs, lovely, lovely guys. And obviously I bonded with them, having been Sri Lanka, and they used to sneak me some nice Sri Lankan food every now and again. They, They provided the food in the canteen. But they disobeyed rules they were supposed to move into hardcover and be sleeping in the gym which was a concrete hardcover building but they didn't because they liked their little pod which wasn't reinforced and it got hit by a rocket it was a what we call a blind so one it didn't doesn't go off it just but they carry on quite far so it had gone right through their building and 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 gone above his head as he slept through the uh, anyway they were they couldn't hear very well but the first thing they did was phone me and were just all I could hear was shouting help us help us you know they had you know blood coming out of their ears and and I couldn't do anything I couldn't leave my pod I couldn't go to them and that was just awfully difficult you know I had to radio to security and let them know they were too frightened to say that they'd broken the rules Mm. Um, bless them and um, so that was a horrible all night waiting to know whether they because I couldn't I didn't know how badly they'd been hurt so I think the thing is was not any risk to yourself but are my friends getting killed out there and I won't know till morning I can imagine as well that that feeling of isolation is doubled in a sense by the role that you had there because it's one thing isn't it if you're part of the fighting force you're this cohesive unit oh, that are yeah. doing a thing but your job it, you are in I was the middle actually quite hated because people say, hate journalists you know and i trying to get people in front of journalists was yeah. quite a mission and the journalists hate you is what i was about oh, to say they do yeah. so the journalists are thinking this is the person who's getting the way of the real story and the army are thinking this is the person that has to, that keeps putting us in front of fucking journalists. I did have a bit of an argument with one um, quite senior broadcaster who's recently retired from the Today programme. <laughs> um, and he said, oh, you're just putting people in front of me that will tell your story. And, and I had it out with him and just said, have you any idea how difficult it is to get anybody in front of you? So this is all we've got, literally. You know, <laughs> the main issue was, I think, that we shouldn't have been there. It was too early. Civilians shouldn't have been there. And the job that we were trying to do of promoting the reconstruction efforts, um, where there were some amazing projects going on, like reflooding the marshes and growing tomatoes and all these sort of like, you know, soft but important things that were happening. But the overall thing was it was a little futile, you know, and I think there was 
the idea that you can destroy a country and then be the architect in rebuilding it yes. was f- very flawed. So were there times where you almost wanted to sort of say to journalists, look, go and check this out. Don't listen to me. Yes. <laughs> and I might have done once. Uh, as a Guardian journalist and uh, I did recognise some of my own words in his article that he very kindly didn't name me in and thought, oops, uh, perhaps need to <laughs> toe the line a bit more. It's difficult so, though, isn't it? Very hard. Yeah, very hard. As a woman, what was it like being in an environment that was like 98% male? It was very, very macho. So if you say, for example, you cried, I can remember crying because obviously people had died and it was quite stressful. And, and my um, male line manager at the time was like, right, that's it. She's cracked. You know, <laughs> she needs to be sent home. I was like, you know, no, crying Sincerely is okay. Sincerely though, that's, that's what he true. really thought. Absolutely. That's what I was told. And wow. there was a very much a like, don't cry, don't show emotion. Um, but you know that's what a lot of women do when they're upset and well, it's what good. a lot of men do crying is great yeah well they wouldn't have done it there well, but there was little... somewhere right maybe quietly in their freight containers yeah but the prevailing atmosphere it's just interesting isn't yeah, it because you'd expect that so. in 1975 but maybe not in 2006 uh, oh gosh it was rife there and, yeah. and um, I was sexually assaulted there oh, I'm sorry um, and um, by someone in the army um he was somebody who was working for the foreign office right i didn't know what to do with it i didn't have i didn't so what happened was we have close protection teams so it's a team of very sort of a fit built blokes who used to look after us who had their security office if ever anyone went in wanted to go into basra town they would go in um armed vehicles with these guys if we went anywhere we'd have the armed protection officers with us and so not knowing what to do after this had happened one night I broke the rules and went out of my um, my pod and found them and told them what had happened because they were the only people sort of psychologically they were my protectors right so I went and told them which perhaps was a bit of a mistake because they immediately wanted to find out who it was because we're going to kill them (laughs) Uh, they wanted to go and deal with them. So and I didn't, you didn't want that to happen? No, I didn't. I just wanted, you know... To be and I ended up drinking tea and watching a crap movie, which is actually what I wanted more than them to go out and take revenge. Um, so there was very little sort of soft support there at all. You had to seek it yourself. And I can remember um, going to Basra Air Station, flying there to go and talk to the military about their communications and information. Um, and I started my period. And... I was wearing white linen because I thought I was in the desert looking like really not advisable. (laughs) Um, And I was walking around looking for any female I could find going into like where all the military were all camped saying, any girls here? You know, just so I could get some sanitary wear (laughs) to help me. But stuff like that, it just was not built for women. Women shouldn't be. And there were people there who actually said to me as a mother, you shouldn't be here. Yes, it's interesting that. I, I almost checked myself when I asked you about leaving your children behind, although, as you explained, they were in Kuwait City, because I was thinking to myself, would I ask a man that would question? Would you have asked a man? Yeah. I think I probably would, which is why I asked you. Yeah, I think but, you would. But, but not no, everyone lots would. Lots of people would say, why are you here? And I would say, well, you've, oh, you've got kids. Why have you left your kids behind? Yeah, yeah. That was tough, yeah. But I used to speak to them on the phone all the time. But, yeah, it was a bit odd to get asked that a lot. I became a little bit of a mum on camp, so a lot of people came to me and told me their problems. That's interesting. 
interesting. I don't know if they were trying to chat me up, but that was the general feeling was I was a bit of an agony aunt. I came to my office, which actually I was told by one of the soldiers used to be the mortuary during when they first went in. So I, there was the ghosts of dead people in there. Not very nice. And I'm going back to my sort of marble floored office, if you can imagine, sort of very echoey. And there being a soldier sat waiting for me from the other camp. I was like, oh, hello. And he said, oh, I've been told that you can help. And I was like, okay, who are you? And he was just a you know, regular soldier. And he said that he'd met this family and, and that he wanted to help the daughter because she was really unwell, but he didn't know how to help. And he needed to get her money for an operation. And, and this is someone he'd met on their reconstruction efforts where they were sending soldiers in to repaint schools and um, you know do nice things to try and win over the hearts and minds of the people of Basra. I don't, I don't know if what, whether I did help him very much really but it was curious that they'd found me on the foreign office part of the camp and I was the one that would be a shoulder to cry on. And you ended up being called before the Iraq inquiry? Yes um there was a big um, hotel in London. We, we all the people that had served as civilians, spent the day, you know, with the Chilcot team, and it was the first time since we'd been evacuated from there that we'd been together or had any sort of sense of a debrief. And as you can imagine, we all went for some rather messy drinks afterwards, and the war stories just poured out, and it was clear that people were carrying a lot of difficulty but um, what was clear and I hadn't really realised or recognised until afterwards was the time that we were there was quite exceptional it was exceptionally dangerous and we we shouldn't have been there and that really was the conclusion that at that time the number of you know attacks on on us was you know incredible so just unpack for me what you were saying there you said people were carrying a lot yeah, well, I think there was people responded to the trauma that they'd witnessed in different ways. Um, you know, some were drinking heavily, some were, you know, making very light of it and making jokes, which is a common coping strategy. You know, others, I'm not going to lie, they had a bit of a mad look in their eye. So. It had been transformative for them in a bad way. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. We all had. Uh, trauma assessments when we came out of the country and um, the the assessment for me was that apart from a, a little bit of hypervigilance that I had grown I had I didn't have post-traumatic stress I had post-traumatic development post-traumatic development yes. <laughs> that's so interesting isn't it so that's the opposite to post-traumatic stress yes that's what they told me I don't know if it's an official thing but um, that's what they said so it does come to that thing of you were at a juncture in your life anyway yeah. and it helped weirdly being in this yeah. extreme situation. Oh yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. What did you do with that information? Carried on going to war zones. I thought, yes, I'm invincible. <laughs> I'm amazing. Still to come, Kazi's career pivots again as she brings her experiences coping under fire to benefit her local police force. That's when the modern man returns, after this. Back to my conversation with Kaz Jane now, and a warning, this section includes a discussion about suicide and self-harm. 
In recent years, Kaz has worked with her partner, Jim, repairing cars, and she took a master's in fine art, all rather different to the adrenalising foreign office roles she'd had in war zones. But then, when Covid hit, Kaz felt a desire to help and applied to be an emergency call handler for the police. I work with the police a little bit in Iraq, and I have a bit of a fan of um, true crime and police documentaries. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I, a real good test to find out whether I'm made for policing is to throw myself in to the deep end and applied for a job as an emergency call handler. And I have to say it was the most difficult job I've ever done in my life. Were you prepared for it? I mean, was the training sufficient? (laughs) I don't know if you ever can be. It's like when you're about to have a baby and you read a book about having a baby. You can't possibly be prepared for it. You just have to do it. No two calls are the same. So they can be about anything. Anything. Was there a call that still haunts you? The very first call. So I was... was, um, um, not be afraid to say I was shitting myself <laughs> did the training it was about four weeks long and uh, the whole thing builds up to you going live right so you take so you do practice calls no problem you know with actors that's fine is but, that what they do that's interesting yeah well, yeah and um but there's so much um there's I think there's like nine different systems that you need to be operating at the same time as talking to someone because you your job is to talk to someone and be typing yes. into a log which the dispatcher can see and will be making decisions on on how quickly we need to get people there. Yeah. So what you write and so it's a it's a very I mean I thought being a speechwriter was tough but writing the right things down on a log and identifying the risks are absolutely crucial whilst you're talking. So there's a lot of uh, multitask uh, extreme multitasking going on so um going live i was very nervous and they said to me have you got any triggers or any any ones you're worried about and i said well my first husband jumped off clifton suspension bridge and ended his own life when i was 21 Mm. and that will probably be difficult call for me Mm. and they all sort of looked at each other and then I realised, and I'm like, happens a lot. That's the bread and butter, I was yeah. Like, oh, God. Okay, so my very first call in tutorship still, so I had someone next to me, was a young man who was running towards the suspension bridge with the intention to take his life. And I could see my tutor kind of looked at me, and I was like, no, that's fine, I've got this. And it was his sister that was calling to tell me. And... We got the helicopter up. We got, you know, we got units there straight away. And it worked. And, and on that occasion, I don't know what's happened to him since, he didn't take his own life. And I felt that I'd been instrumental in saving him. So after that, plain sailing, I became that like a good suicide call, expert then. Okay, yeah, yeah, then I was like, yeah, bring them on. So That's I not just a that case one. of... Um, triggering though is it that's a case of wow it's it's dealing yeah. with an unresolved issue from your own life i know but everyone had them of course everyone right. in the room had an unresolved issue and mm. everyone had their own triggers some yes. people they found it very difficult to deal with people with dementia we had a lot of that right um some people if it was um actually and i didn't like this very much but if a pet or an animal was injured 
that was quite a trigger you yeah. know i had a cat that had been shot by a crossbow and the owner was very upset and you know so everyone has their own thing it's just about knowing yourself isn't it so but you can't do anything about it i mean that call comes through it's the cat and the crossbow you, you have to well, take it right you have to take you it. can't transfer but this it. is when i learned the same as i did in iraq is is that your own resilience is important and so the resilience building techniques your diet how much you sleep how much you breathe before you take each call all these things really have an impact on how well you can cope with it and um, that's why I saw for the first time especially on a night shift yes. um, how people didn't look after themselves very well do you know it's funny you say that because um, I used to present an overnight radio show oh, right and almost regardless of what the topic is yeah much more than people who don't listen to overnight radio realize yeah between 2 and 3 a.m someone would call you who clearly was intending to kill themselves or thinking oh, about really? it just because it's 2 30 in the morning and they're oh, calling gosh and they'd phone a radio station they'd phone a radio station to talk about whatever gosh. topic it was you were discussing that's a cry for help isn't it it big, is big one and of course it makes the headlines when the radio presenter does that thing of talking someone down yeah. from suicide but it's not normally that dramatic so have you ever just, had to do it? I've had to do it. Oh, bless you. But it's it's often not quite at the stage where they're really thinking seriously. Yes. They're, they're, they're literally calling for something to do to distract their brain. Yes, and there's some important things to know about that. You know, we're trained to ask people to look for something in the future that they're looking forward to. Yes. For example, yeah. Y- yeah, or yeah. at least to uh, change the context that they're discussing into and something positive. And build common ground, that's important. Right. All of yeah. that stuff. Yeah. But the thing that I found useful, and this is what I was thinking when you were just talking about how you yourself had to process those traumas, yeah. is that once you've... I mean, obviously, being a radio presenter is more of a performance than being on the end of a phone, but it's still a performance, That's a right? a performance, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. Once you finish, in my case, once you go to the commercial break, in your case, mm. once you hang up mm. the phone, there are things you need to do to reset yourself. Yeah. So what were those for you? Uh, even in Somerset the headquarters where we were at beautiful grounds in fact with deer and badgers and squirrels and so it was to go for a walk you know it took about sort of 10 minutes to walk around right. the place being in there's a lot of science in fact that shows that being in contact with nature is very healing i mean yeah. it's not no coincidence that the greeks would build hospitals and you know with views of nature it's a healing property so that that is something that that I did, but not everyone did. And having that break, doing something different, but also thinking about the thing that had just happened rather than trying not to think about it. Mm. Talking about it with colleagues, you know, there's a lot that you can do. And was that instinctive for you or did you start reading around processing trauma? Probably wasn't instinctive then. It was instinctive when I look back to Basra and the amount of time that I spent meditating, practicing Tai Chi, early in the morning perhaps when I shouldn't have been out and about around the compound um, but that was very instinctive I was only looking back that I was like oh now I understand why I was doing that when things get the most difficult then I dig down into my resilience and I, I still do it now yeah there's an element as well of being able to forgive yourself as well isn't there because you're never going to have said the right thing you're always going to have got something a bit wrong 
Well, uh, this is uh, the other thing, and I think lots of people that work in the police are their own worst critics, and they will go uh, replay incidents, um, whether it's one on the phone or in person, thinking, you know, if I'd done the right thing, was that, did I shouldn't have said that, and oh, I should have given them that advice, and why didn't, you know. The thing about call handling, though, is that it, I often liken it to um, going into a bookshop and taking a book off the shelf, reading the first page and then putting it back. You never really know the end of the story. And it's not even page one, actually, is it? It's kind of page 46. No. Oh, yeah. Just a random selection, yeah, somewhere. I think one thing that people don't realise is that's an additional stress is that people that answer 999 calls are the same people that answer 101 calls, the non-emergency calls. Mm. And you never know which one you're going to get next. I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you're waiting for a long time for 101 to answer, the reason is that 999 calls are prioritised. Right. So um, there is a real good reason why your call's not being answered. Let's say there's a, an incident on the motorway, you know, a lorry turns over. Yeah. How many people do you think phone 999? Right. So instantly the lines get jammed. And the 101s will wait half an hour to be yeah. answered. Yeah. Um, but you, so you as a call hander might be going from, I can remember going from talking to someone who was pushing a knife into their stomach as they were on the phone to me. Wow. And then police arrived at the scene. Well, okay, we're here. So I'll hang up because I don't need to be on the phone to the person who's doing that anymore. Next call drops, a 101 call. And I've it lost says, my keys. I'm not being funny, but my neighbour's put his bin in front of my drive again. <laughs> you know, so you have to adjust so quickly yes. to the next. Which isn't human, is it? No. Of course no. you're going to be grumpy or you're going to be alert or whatever. Yeah. So that is the, it's the adjusting in your communication styles that is really key and to maintain sort of respect and empathy with everybody. And so what you've done now in your current role, and yes. we've done a bit of a whistle-stop tour of your so various jobs. I'm not doing jobs, the cool hander job now. You're not doing that anymore. But you yeah. have taken, I would say, lessons from that into what you do now. So as well as my job working for Constabulary, I have been, for the past year and a half... I have been um, teaching police officers how to meditate. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have an open-minded chief constable who has like encouraged that, seen the benefit from it. Um, and I think I've taught over 50 now to meditate. And I have a sort of regular club of uh, meditators. And I've just started with the first one last month doing retreats in the forest. Um, I'm smiling police. because we're going from a situation where you're talking about an environment in Basra 20 yeah. years ago where you weren't allowed to cry to a situation yes. where the police are paying you for meditation but and forest know. retreats. So is that because time has passed or is yeah. it just uh, because more people are susceptible to that now or what? Yeah, well, it, oh, I'm so pleased we've gone in in this direction and that there is a chief constable. I do think 20 years ago he would have been laughed out of town they have a you know a whole well-being team in in the police force that i work for uh, amazing and tears are a big part of it and actually seeing a police officer crying in the forest is a beautiful thing for me because i know how important it is mm. and and so many similarities really with the military and with other emergency service workers and that things get bottled up 
Um, it's also the kind of people who become police officers in the first place, generally speaking, perhaps, are not the kind of people that are into well-being, meditation and stuff before they right. join. I think what, what they're not is people that look after themselves. They're mm-hmm. people that are programmed to help other people. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, 95% of people who work for the constabulary I work for in the staff survey said their main driver is to help people, to help other people. And it's I've observed everywhere where I've worked in environments where people are focused on emergency help or not even or non-emergency help even social care that other people come first yes and what happens then is it's a bit like if you're on an airplane and you don't put your oxygen mask on first right they tell you you must put your oxygen mask on before you can help anyone else and that bit gets missed from these extreme givers and carers and they don't work on their own resilience they work you know in this kind of adrenaline filled need to help rushing to help people yes never really understand and i think now people are just beginning to understand the importance of investing in self-care and resilience and how that can i mean the corporates understand it um you know there's loads of well-being initiatives because they understand that if they invest in well-being then the employees are more productive right there's also an element of letting the mask slip i suppose in the yeah. police isn't there in the way we were yeah. talking about call handers oh listen and the police have got a long way to go i think the fire service have that problem with not crying and the macho-ness and the yeah you know paramedics and ambulance drivers have some of the highest sickness rates in the nhs there's such high there's a high suicide rate in in police officers you know yes and um they the the shit that they deal with is phenomenal on a daily basis and and it, it not just police officers i was talking to um a firefighter the other day and he was telling me how he his most traumatic thing was pulling a german shepherd dog out of a car in an rtc he said oh i can pull dead bodies out all the time but the dead dog just got to him somehow it was the vulnerability yeah yeah i mean lots of people listening to this may not work in blue light services themselves but may know someone who is how can Mm. you support them as a friend or in in their family i think one of the problems sort of post-covid and going through covid has been that people haven't really had the opportunity to process it And one thing about trauma that is absolutely clear is that we need to process it somehow. Just pausing, stopping, being able to think about it, allowing yourself to cry and get help. You know, those are the crucial things. But we're at a time now where public service and emergency services are under so much pressure. Um, People are leaving the service and the ones left behind are often... Um, carrying on through a sense of duty and they're burning themselves out yes so what can we do about it well one thing's for sure is that we need to invest so much more in well-being and make the cultural changes to allow it if you work with a group of people and the starting point for them is their health and well-being that they will prosper no doubt about it Mm. That needs to be ingrained with all blue light services at a senior leadership level, really. I mean, the odd bit of meditation's good, but it needs a strategy. And that's not, by the way, about giving people sugary treats. 
This is the thing, isn't not. it, that people do often... I know, they think it's just being nice to people and they will give nurses boxes of Quality Street or they leave a packet of biscuits at a police station. I've seen it. Yes. And, and, and we really shouldn't be rewarding behaviour with things that are bad for us. That's the... Right. Know. Because then it's going to create a blood sugar issue or obesity. Oh, my goodness. The biggest problem on the, on the night shift on call for call handers was the the uh, sweet cupboard oh yes my, the, yeah, yeah yeah and, and it was just this cupboard full of energy drinks crisps sweets and that's how they got through and they used to look at me and be like Kaz how are you how are you coping or you haven't eaten anything I'm like small sips of water and a banana if I'm absolutely desperate but otherwise yeah because booze gonna... is the other one in our culture people often say thank you or Merry Christmas here's a bottle I know and that needs to end or not a drink of myself and I get quite offended at you know, Christmas, if I'm thanked for my hard work by something that's terrible for me. Okay, so uh, yeah. that's, I mean, that's a really practical point, though, isn't it? But yeah. if you want to say thank you, someone yeah. who's done you a good turn, especially yeah. if they're in the emergency services and they've yes. got a lot of chocolate stacking up, yes. what do you give them instead? A massage. Right. <laughs> Not physically, but a voucher for one. A voucher for a massage. <laughs> yes, <Okay>. don't touch them. <laughs> Kaz Jane. Uh, I've put a link to her website on ours, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And also there, in the blog post for this episode, you'll find some bonus audio. There's an extra seven minutes from our conversation in which Kaz sort of demonstrated on me some basic breathing techniques and explained how whatever you do for a living, you can benefit from meditation and integrate it into your daily routines. If you'd find that interesting, then do check it out. It's totally free. It's on our website, modernman.co.uk and you'll find the audio there um and you know what i'm going to say about suicide if you relate to those feelings if you're having suicidal thoughts please don't suffer in silence call the samaritans their details are in our show notes as well uh next up a man fan with a relationship quandary for alex how soon when you're dating should you mention you're a widower that's the foxhole after this It's time for your questions of sex. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ollie. I'm feeling so golden. It's like I've been fingered by Midas himself. And Alex, I understand you've been learning some sex etymology this week. Yes, once again, I've been putting the dick in dictionary during my conversations with a nurse called Rob who works for Orchid, a male cancer charity. Uh, And I noticed during our conversation that uh, he referred to orchitis, which is the word for inflammation of the testicles, and orchidectomy, which is the removal of a testicle. And of course, the name of the charity itself is Orchid. Uh, And it got me thinking, like, what is this etymology? What's the link between testicles and orchids? And a bright purple plant. What could it be? (laughs) Well, it's not the top of the plant. It's actually more fittingly uh, connected to bits lower down. All of these terms stem from the ancient Greek term orchis, which means testicle, ovary, orchid, and a type of olive. Uh, And way back when, Theophrastus who was a uh, Greek philosopher, actually named the, the flowers 
after the gonads because certain forms of that fleur have tubers that look like knackers. <laughs> People often thought that if a plant looked like a body part, then it might have some uh, properties in terms of treating any inflammation or aggravation with that body part. Yes, they were very literal, so, weren't they? Yeah, there were all sorts of supposed cures made from orchids that helped people with their ball sacks. And there's also a Middle English word for certain orchids, bollockwort, which again came <laughs> from this resemblance of, of the, the bottom of the plant looking like like a gonad sack. Um, I know what I'm going to ask for next time I'm in Holden Barrett. <laughs> right, time for your question of sex. Uh, brought to you this month by sponsors The Handy. They're back on the show. They are, and I'm so happy that they're sponsoring us again. So The Handy is a superlative Scandinavian automated stroking sleeve for men and people with penises who want to experience whole new dimensions of pleasure. We'll tell you more about that later. There's a discount code. Uh, but first, this month's question, who comes from an anonymous man who's asking about dating after bereavement. He says, Alex, when is a good time to bring up the fact that I'm a widower? It's an important fact about me, but I wouldn't want to open with it immediately for fear of it, A, becoming my whole identity, and B, killing any vibe before it's even started. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to leave it too long because that then seems serial killer creepy. <laughs> Does it? I think that's quite brutal. I think he's overthinking this. uh, But I can imagine why you wouldn't want to keep such an important thing hidden for too long, sure. Well, he says, what are your suggestions, Alex? If I do it as a parting shot as we wind up the first date... Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm a single dad with a sad backstory. Bye. (laughs) That seems a bit off. But at the same time, if I open with, Hi, I'm me. I used to be married, but my wife died. That seems a bit full on. Um, First of all, I am obviously very sorry for everything that this person has lost. uh, And I hope that he finds many comforts and joys as time goes along. Um, I'd also just like to make the point that so frequently when people write in for advice from agony aunts or when they're sharing a dilemma on a forum, I often notice that they've actually done a lot of really good groundwork for themselves just in the way that they phrase their letter. Mm. Um, If I was dating somebody who presented their situation to me like this and said, oh, you know, this is really awkward. I don't want to say this too soon because I don't want to put you off uh, or for you to think that um, my entire life is dominated by my status as a widower. But also I didn't want to leave it too late because I thought that might feel strange. I would think that they were doing a really good job of handling an incredibly sensitive, difficult situation. Mm. And I'd be uh, in admiration that they'd been trying to pay attention to my comfort at a time that might be incredibly uncomfortable for them. So I think this person, this man, has actually done a a great deal of, of, of good work. And if he just uses some of the terminology he's mm. used in our email to us, then that might help him. But why come out at all? I mean, he obviously feels this pressure to be the person volunteering the information. But it kind of strikes me if you're having a date and you're talking about being a dad, it's a natural conversation anyway. At some point, where's their mother? Like, it would come up as a question to which your answer can be, oh, she sadly died. I mean, it doesn't. that's not weird. That's normal life. No, I agree that it's not weird. But lots of people do feel weird about death. 
and get very weird and nervous and uh, have a huge amount of trepidation about how to deal with it, both the, both as people who are bereaved themselves and people who are dating somebody who's, who's been bereaved. We do have a problem within our society that we don't talk openly enough about death as part of life. And so that means that situations like the one this man is, is very sadly facing are trickier than perhaps they ought to be. And that squeamishness actually then means you're kind of thinking if you're him, I've mentioned this bombshell now, we're going to, here goes 15 minutes of talking about my dead wife. And that's the other thing, isn't it? You're on a date. Don't want to be talking about that. Not necessarily, no. Although maybe there are things that you do want to share and you shouldn't feel ashamed or, or, or like there's anything grim about doing so. Before I share what the experts shared with me, I just want to acknowledge that there are a few key points that we don't know about our, our, our foxhole listener here. We don't know how long ago it was that he lost his wife. We don't know how old he is, although the fact that he says he's a single dad and just the general way that he expresses himself suggests that he's fairly young to me. And we also don't know how old his children are. All of those factors would feed into the precise advice that I or another expert might give him. So let's bear that in mind while we uh, dissect this further. Um, but the first person I chatted to is called Vicky Anning and she is from a charity called Way, Widowed and Young. They're specifically set up for people who have lost a partner uh, at the age of 50 or younger. Mm. And she told me that there are really different views amongst the widowed community, and I want to return to that phrase in a sec, about how soon you should tell somebody that you have lost a partner. Um, some people pop it up on their dating profile if they're using apps or mm. if, they're, if they're using websites. Which they is actually a really handy way to get rid of it, right? Yeah. I she mean, if made you the don't point. want to discuss it, it's just there. People or, know what they're getting in for. Or if you do want to discuss yes, it, but you equally, perhaps want to there. weed out anybody who is who doesn't, who doesn't want yeah. to discuss that. Yeah, Vicky made the really good point that um, the way somebody responds to your widowed status does actually tell you a lot about how compassionate and understanding they might be as a, as a future partner. There's definitely going to be some people who find that too too much of a, a challenge uh, that they're not able to accept somebody who who comes from a previous relationship that ended in such a a sad or, or abrupt way um, but if you're open and upfront about your status to start with then you don't have to endure the pain of finding out later down mm. the line perhaps once you've formed a connection with somebody but mm. that actually they can't handle who you are and what you've been through it's also I imagine for some people it's maybe more reassuring than divorced I mean if you're talking about dad on the market they might think, well, they were still together and then she died. You know, there's there's not maybe such a warning sign as there might be with the divorce dad. I want to try and talk about this carefully so I don't sound too macabre. But, yeah, it's there's not that fear of, oh, there's an ex-partner still yeah. hanging around yeah. who might cause problems with the children or who perhaps might try and make a play for this, this person. Except, of course, then in other ways, that ex-partner is totally hanging around, aren't they? Because the children don't have a mum. I mean, that's going to be part of the situation from day one. And also because their memory and all the wonderful potential times that they that they shared with the person you're dating might still want to be honoured. Right. Um, obviously, not everybody who loses a partner had a blissful, perfect relationship. And that's another thing that I think we find very difficult to talk about when it comes to death. We have a tendency after someone has passed to talk about them as though they're completely angelic and uh, that everything about them was... Um, shiny and sheeny and wonderful. On the flip side, though, I also heard the opinions of 
Jessica Herrick and Rachel Barnett. They're associated with a charity called Let's Talk About Loss. They're focused on 18 to 35 year olds and this has all types of loss as well, not just of partners but of fathers, mothers, grandmothers, uh, friends. Even if that's not relevant to our listener, it might well be relevant to his children who might need to talk not only about losing their mum but about how they feel about their father dating or mm. spending time with, with with new women. What Jess and Rachel both told me is that they don't like to talk about the fact that they are widows too early. Jess said that uh, her partner passed away about two and a half years ago. She says she chooses not to tell people on a first date unless she really thinks that she'll see them again because she just doesn't mm. want to put herself through. That's what I was going to get. Yeah. You don't want to necessarily have that 15-minute conversation on your date. No, or or feel obligated yeah. to divulge something so sensitive to everybody you meet for a white wine in Weatherspoons. Right. Rachel said similar. She said, unless it's someone she's really connected with or that's also told me that, that told her rather that they've made a, maybe had a significant loss in their life, she just prefers to keep that information close to her, close to her chest until she thinks that someone is getting closer to her heart. Both women, however, did also tell me that, as you say, Ollie, it sort of does tend to naturally come up anyway. For Rachel, uh, she owns a house and a camper van, and so people ask her, oh, how did you afford that on, her, on your own? But both these people said for them, first date, if it's going well, they'll bring it up briefly. Uh, apart from that, they feel that it's their news, it's their experience, they do not have to share it with everybody. I was contacted via Instagram by a lady called Sarah, who is also someone who has lost their partner. I'm so grateful for all these people for sharing this with me. It really is an honour. Um, she, she really made me laugh a lot. She said, you can often think that you're really hard after you've lost somebody. You think, well, the worst thing that I can imagine has happened. My partner died it can't get worse than this. She said she thought that she was made of Teflon, that she was absolutely untouchable after after the person that she loved passed away. She found that absolutely the opposite was true. She was actually quite vulnerable, very emotional. Another point that she made, again, in a way, the way she expressed herself, did make me smile. She said, shared experience is not always the holy grail. And as she puts it, I would personally advise sticking to dating muggles. Now, this is again something that is really divisive amongst widowers. There are dating sites, especially for people who are widowed. There's one called mm. Chapter 2 that was set up by uh, Nikki Wake, who's one of the members of Widowed and Young. So there are some people who think, I want to meet someone who's had a really similar experience to me because I feel like they're the only one who's going to get it. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you yeah. can bond over Star Wars, then losing a partner is going to be a big one, isn't it? Sure. And then worrying about things like when and how mm. to bring up the fact that you are bereaved becomes less of a big deal. Others, like Sarah, don't want that to be the defining factor of who they are and how they love from then on. Some people actually spoke to me about the idea of a strange sort of grief Olympics that can happen between widowers, where if one person feels that they are ready to embrace new passions or to be happy and that they're really pushing for happiness, mm. whereas another person is still mired understandably but you know still weighed down by their grief 
there can be some guilt associated with being the person who's moved on the fastest. Okay, so this is a sex and relationships section. You've covered the relationships bit, I feel, right? But let's just get to the bedroom bit because this is the bit that doesn't always get covered Uh (laughs) by the agony aunts, right? Yeah. Are there still then issues about, I guess, frankly, stepping into the bed of someone who died, which is different to stepping into the bed of someone who split up? I am so glad that you've brought this up because... So many of the folks that I chatted to said that they wished people talked about this more. You think there's a taboo about dating after bereavement. My God, the taboo and stigma about sleeping with someone after Mm. bereavement or desiring intimacy and touch and that kind of physical connection. Universally, people told me that they felt like it was ungodly in the eyes of many of their, their friends and family to talk about that. Um, Jess told me that after her partner Max passed away she actually had a really strong urge to have sex with someone again that is really common even though she carried a lot of guilt and questions about herself for having those desires when I thought about it to me it made a lot of sense for a start you've gone through an immense period of stress and you want to rediscover joy and pleasure and kind of the the human basics really Mm Um, Secondly, people frequently experience after going through bereavement this epiphany that life is short Mm. and they want to get on with uh, with carpe diem and and having a good time and, and making the most of every day and hour that they do have. Lots of people find that during a period of grief and uh, perhaps prolonged illness before someone's death, their existence is a lot in their minds. They're thinking a lot. They're reflecting a lot. It's all very much about in their heads. Mm. The opportunity to feel like they're back in their bodies again Mm. can be just really compelling, a very strong need. But to be the person stepping into the bed of the person who's departed, that must be very difficult as well. Like, you know, people are always worried that they're being compared to ex-partners, but being compared to the one that's dead is particularly difficult. I so often say that sweeping topics under the carpet just makes lumps for you to trip over later. And I think that this is one of those lumpy topics Mm. here. Uh, It might not seem very tasteful, But it is absolutely a fact that people who date folks who have been bereaved often feel or can feel quite jealous of the dead partner because they see them as uh, someone that their lover will always be pining for, that will always be important to them. They worry that they can't possibly compete with that that passed away person. Um, They might feel quite challenged by the fact that there are special days in the year that are about that deceased person that days like valentine's day might feel like almost shared if you will Mm. and of course yeah in the bedroom it can be very tricky you're worried about whether your partner is going to get upset whether something might be triggering for them right yeah Yeah, because i was thinking oh i'll never live up to them but actually you don't want to be them i mean that could be upsetting if you're too much like them If you are dating somebody who's bereaved and you're worried about them not having space in their heart for you, don't forget that people have children all the time and having one child doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity to love another or even another after that. It is absolutely possible 
to hold true love for one person and still hold absolutely true new love for another. And lots of my bereaved interviewees spoke about dating almost in terms of becoming new parents again. They, mm. they, made, they drew that comparison. Yeah, because there's this whole thing about, oh, how will I compare? And it's like, well, why ask yourself that question at all? Why are you trying to compare? You're just a different person. You're not trying to compare. You're not trying to replace. You're a whole new person and a whole new experience. Excellent stuff. Uh, Alex, thank you. And thank you to our sponsors for The Foxhole, The Handy. Well, you know what, Ollie? We've just spent a long time talking about seizing the day and making the most of your time on earth and, and life being too short to deny yourself pleasure yes. and good times there and you the are so if you're a man listening to this you don't intimacy. have a sex toy then seize the day exactly do not be held back by old-fashioned stigma or out-of-date ideas about toys designed for dudes that would probably have roots back when they called testicles orchids <laughs> so the handy is is a really high-tech device but it's also very very e- easy to use. It's a motorised gadget that looks so stylish and slick with a textured sleeve that attaches to the side of it. So you're not inserting your penis into the machine itself, no, which some people find not, intimidating. Yeah, people think it's like straight into a Dyson. It's not like that. Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not putting your meat straight into something that looks like a garbage disposal unit. You know, I can understand why that might mm. feel a bit off-putting for some people. That's not how this works. The motor moves a sleeve that is on the outside of the device. The, the textured sleeve itself, and there are all sorts of sleeves that you can buy that um, that feel like blowjobs or hand jobs or have interesting nobbles and nodules and textures. Um, you can use different lubes with them to make them feel different. Um, the ones that Handy sell are all transparent as well, so you can see what's happening. You can, you, you know, you or your partner can, or your partner can. Yeah, exactly. You can control the length of the stroke so you can just have it going short up and down at the tip or long strokes up and down the whole of your trunk you can make it faster slower um, one amazing thing that you can do and there are so many exciting different ways to play with yourself and others using the handy is that you can sync it up so that the device replicates the movement that you're witnessing when you're watching adult films. So you become not just a viewer of porn, but a virtual doer. You're not just masturbating, you're participating. And if you want to get your hands on a handy then we've got an offer for you. You've got to go to thehandy.com, although we've got a special link that's in the show notes so they know we sent you. And then you enter what code? As this is a really shiny brand new offer as well. It's a good one. If you use the code FOXHOLE10, you get 10% off your whole purchase. FOXHOLE10 at thehandy.com and follow the link in the show notes. Alex, a pleasure. Handy, Randy, over and out. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It's Sally Baker from Santa Fe, New Mexico, the oldest capital city in the US. It wasn't the first capital to be established, she says, that's St. Augustine, Florida, but it has been continuously situated as a capital longer than any other in the USA. I feel this email is Sally auditioning to be a researcher on Today in History with the Retrospectors rather than applying to be an ambassador. Uh, she says, If selected as my ambassador for Santa Fe, I pledge to represent my city's tri-culture origins, indigenous, Spanish and Anglo, 
to the very best of my ability. It would be a deep honour, many thanks for your consideration. Now, I don't know if that's a typo or a man pun, but in any case, it sealed the deal. I now pronounce you, Sally, my ambassador for Santa Fe. Congratulations. If you'd like to be a ambassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line. Links are on our website. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with our fun-packed Christmas special, live music, skillathon, sex quiz, on December the 10th. Who said that we don't go them days you're feeling low? I want you to know I can't wait till we go Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.